A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello and welcome. I'm Tim Farron. And this is the show where you get to hear from a Christian who works either in or through the mucky business of politics. You might think politics is tainted by compromise and sin. Well, you'd be right, of course, but then again, so is everything else. And I think Christians should be praying for their brothers and sisters who are involved in politics in an informed way. Today, we're going to be joined by the commentator and journalist Peter Hitchens. We'll talk about his conversion from atheism to Christianity and how he sees the relationship between church and state. But before that, the Archbishop of Canterbury used his Easter Sunday sermon to, amongst other things, declare as ungodly the government's latest announcement that it would deport to Rwanda refugees who arrived in the UK through irregular routes. The plan would see the UK subcontract its processing of some refugees to Rwanda, where it is thought that their asylum cases could be heard. But the Archbishop said that this approach was the opposite to the nature of God and that Christ's resurrection was not the time for us to subcontract our responsibilities. So how should we think about this? Well, we are to love our neighbour. The famous parable that Jesus told to illustrate this, the Good Samaritan, tells us who qualifies as our neighbour. Answer, everybody, especially everybody in need. That includes people we don't like, people from alien cultures, people we are suspicious of, because that is how the Samaritan would have felt towards the injured Jewish man lying in a ditch. It's radical stuff. Given that most refugees who cross the channel in small boats do turn out to be genuine refugees once they've been processed, many will say it's wrong to deport those people just because of the way they got here. But supporters of the government will respond in turn saying that the Rwanda plan is about deterring the people traffickers who enable refugees to risk their lives crossing the channel. I do see that point, but for any refugee who isn't from Syria, Afghanistan or Ukraine, there are almost no safe routes to claim asylum in the UK, and so people from places like Iran, Eritrea and Sudan have no option but to take those risky journeys to get to the UK if there is no safer option available. Welby's remarks drew sincere anger, including from my friend and former podcast guest, the Christian conservative journalist and commentator Tim Montgomery. Tim said Christians can legitimately support or oppose the Rwanda policy if, in their souls, their ultimate aim is a safer, sustainable refugees policy. Tim then added, how dare my archbishop say Anglicans like me are acting against God because we favour a different path to shared goals. Now, I do have strong sympathy with Tim's reaction here. It is possible for Christians to have different views over a policy like this, so long as our motivations are to do good in God's sight. To put my cards on the table, I strongly disagree with the government's policy, partly because I don't think it will solve any problems, but mostly because I doubt the government's motivation. It feels more like a headline to cause a politically helpful culture war row rather than to address a real problem, especially when you remember that the UK is not awash with asylum seekers. We don't really have a huge problem to solve. Most countries in Europe take more asylum seekers per head of population than we do. To use desperate victims of war and persecution then as pawns in a political game seems unquestionably wrong to me. So was the Archbishop out of order to step into politics like this? 
I don't think so, because the Bible tells us that there is good and evil and that we are not to be nice, inoffensive and neutral on such matters. We should be humble and prayerful about speaking into our culture and our politics, and we should do so carefully, fully aware of our own need for forgiveness. But we should surely do so. The Jesus who overturned the tables of the moneylenders in Matthew 21 and in Mark 7 condemned those who gave to the temple rather than taking care of their elderly parents was not neutral on the rights and wrongs of the culture in which he lived and walked. I want church leaders to speak truth to power, to offend and indeed shame those who make bad choices for bad reasons. But I also want Church of England leaders to speak the gospel and I too rarely hear them using their platform to unequivocally do that. The gospel is far more offensive than anything the Archbishop could have said about refugees. Maybe that's why we don't hear it too often. But Christianity is radically countercultural. It isn't woke and it isn't anti-woke. Such considerations are pathetically puny in comparison. Instead, it claims to be the ultimate truth. It tells us that we are not our own, that we will face God's judgment. It crushes our egos, telling us that we all need forgiving. It denies us vengeance by telling us to forgive. It tells us that Jesus, not politics, is our only hope. It tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death, but that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. I think, on balance, the Archbishop was right in his remarks, but I'd love it if church leaders chose to be truly offensive and preach the gospel. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Well, now time to talk to our guest, the commentator, journalist, Peter Hitchens. Peter, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us on the show. Pleasure to be with you. So let's start off with with an opener that we do with most of our guests, which is a little bit about your coming to faith. Now, you were brought up in the church, you uh, chose to leave it, I think that's right to say, uh, became an atheist, you would have called yourself. In recent years, you returned to the faith. So I wonder if you'd tell me a little bit about how all that happened. Well, I wouldn't say I had actually a particularly, uh, a particularly Christian upbringing in terms of my parents, uh, who were certainly not overtly particularly religious, left it very much to schools to teach me the basics of the faith. And so during term time, I went to boarding school from the age of about seven to the age of about 15. In term time, I was pretty much constantly exposed both to religious education and to to regular services, sometimes daily of some form or another. Uh, Hardly a day went by, for instance, when I didn't sing one of the hymns, Ancient and Modern, something I'm very grateful for. Um, And I learned uh, very much the cadences and uh, and, and the most important words of the Book of Common Prayer, 1662, which I also am very grateful for. But in terms of home life, not very much. Uh, then it was at school as well that I, I, I fell among atheists and found atheism extremely attractive uh, as, because I was at the time even more uh, selfish, willful and disagreeable than I am now. And it was an extremely appealing creed. And then I found that as time went on, that it was increasingly unsatisfactory as a way of dealing with the things which I was experiencing. And so I decided to return to what I believed to be, as it were, the faith of my fathers, which I would have been, I suppose I got myself confirmed in the Church of England uh, in the early 1980s when I would have been about 33, 34. 
And I think I probably would say that I declared myself to anybody who cared to listen, and indeed anybody who didn't care to listen, declared myself a, an atheist around about the age of 14 or 15. Uh, I remember particularly trying to set fire to my Bible on the playing fields of my then school at Cambridge, around uh, about then. So I can pretty much date it. So there would have been something of about 20 years in the middle of my life when I was very definitely not merely not uh, a believing Christian, but an actively hostile, uh, scoffing atheist. Mm. Uh, you and I uh, were a, a tag team in a debate at the Cambridge Union a few weeks ago about uh, faith and about church and the extent to which it was a good thing for us to, to go to church. And I wouldn't say there were scoffing atheists on the other side, but certainly those who take the view that uh, Christianity is, is false and that atheism is true. You talk about atheism being an appealing creed. Um, what was it about atheism that did appeal to you in your younger years? The liberation from all the restraints that I've been, I've been brought up to believe in. I, I didn't actually want to be restrained. I wanted to live a life of uh, a, a complete uh, liberty from restraint where I chose what I did and nobody else uh, chose it for me and where, where nobody was able to judge what I did on the other grounds than, than this suits me. And it, it, it was it was very strong, and it, it still is, of course, a strong desire. Mm. I mean, what I want, and I, at that time, I could see no I could see no argument for any restraint, nor any reason to believe that I should be restrained. And that's this is really what changes as, as you mm. grow in experience and what I like to call wisdom. Though I'm not sure other people would call it that. Hmm. I think I think on this show we'd call it wisdom, Peter. Okay, but lots of other people wouldn't. I mean, I, I do encounter a lot of people. I, and I'm going to mention it before you do. I had I had a, a brother who brother famously took the opposite view. So I had to spend quite a lot of time confronting this more than most people would, and thinking about it and trying to find a coherent expression of what I thought. Uh, it was a great benefit to to my uh, belief. In fact, that my brother exploded. So I'd always known since uh, since, mm. since I should think he was about. 10 or 11 that he that he had this growing hostility to religious belief which mm. is very strong in him and when i returned to the, the, the faith in the in, in my 30s and began to confront a lot of people on the sort of vague left of politics who i knew who, 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 who would chide me for this and mock me and say why are you doing this ridiculous thing mm. i had to develop some sort of coherent response and it was very useful to me uh, to be opposed uh, yeah. opposition is very useful to the development of any position and uh, and I, I'm, I'm quite grateful for it actually. I think a lot of people who would call themselves Christian apologists would say that people like um, your your brother Christopher um, who absolutely did sharpen the um, the arguments of those who are defending the Christian faith that maybe Christian faith's defenders have become intellectually lazy over the decades and the rise of what we'll sometimes call the new atheists actually did sharpen their arguments and the arguments are, are strong certainly I think so but you you said at some point in your 30s you got to that stage where you said that atheism atheism didn't satisfy what was it about atheism that didn't satisfy and what is it about Christianity that does well, there were many things about it that I that, that I found increasingly un, un, unsatisfying one of the things that I when I, when I have any spare time at all uh, is I go to the great art galleries of, of Europe, including in this country, and I look at pictures. I also have always been very moved by architecture, the, the probably the most powerful of the arts apart from music, because it's constantly getting at you, even when you're not aware of it. 
And I saw in those things which I enjoyed that my enjoyment was completely banal unless I could confront the fact that so much of this art and so much of this architecture was devoted to the glory of God. Now, either I had to reject this and ask myself what on earth it was about it that, uh, that, that I found so pleasing, or I had to recognize that there was something in this proclamation which I was pleased by. Uh, I also was quite frightened by it. I've, I've gone on about it. Many people have claimed this to be some sort of conversion experience, of which I have not had. Uh, I went a while on holiday in France in the lovely town of Bern uh, to the uh, the um, hospice to Bern, the great um, great late medieval hospital there, and they have on display a tremendous picture of the Last Judgment by Roger van der Weyden, one of the Flemish masters. Uh, I had a very good lunch, uh, full of burgundy in more ways than one, and I wandered into this, uh, much recommended in the in the in the Michelin guides. Uh, worth the journey, I think it was, uh, three stars, uh, into this gallery with one picture really at the center of it, uh, not another religious painting. And I looked at it very closely. And the thing was that the, the, the people actually uh, hurrying to their doom on the wrong side of the Last Judgment, being naked and having in some ways, um, the, the sort of therefore being stripped of any kind of, um, any, any kind of medieval appearance, looked enormously like me and the people I knew. And in a few seconds, I thought, well, what if there is a last judgment? Because if there is, I'm certainly going down that, uh, down the stairs rather than up the stairs. And it concentrated the mind. And I don't, it, what if? I don't know, you can't say there won't be one. You can't by proclaiming there is no last judgment or mm -hmm. there is no judgment of any kind or well, there is no justice in the universe. You can't, by proclaiming it to yourself, make it untrue. Uh, you can only whistle in the dark, say, well, okay, I don't believe in all this. But maybe there is. I've, obviously, all, almost all uh, major religious statements are in the form of allegory and parable. Uh, it would be impossible for us probably to understand the nature of the, of, of the real uh, outcome of justice in the universe. But it seemed to me that the message was very, very plainly sent both in scripture and in art, that there might be justice in the universe. And in that case, which side of it was I on? It sent me to wondering. Still does. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. We're talking to Peter Hitchens, the commentator and journalist about faith and about politics. Peter, let's talk a little bit about how faith relates to the state. We live in a country with a state church. To what extent do you think in Western liberal democracies, though, atheism has in effect become the established faith. I slightly disagree with the, with the, the, the formulation of the church as a state church. Mm. Uh, it's um, the, the involvement of the state with the church is really, is really much more with the, the Reformation settlement of excluding the Pope, uh, mm. who, who in the famous Article 37 and the 39 Articles, uh, the Bishop of Rome, hath no jurisdiction in this realm of England. And that, that it's basically an assertion that that, that that is so more than anything else. It's, it's, not, it's not a state finance church. It's, uh, the, the appointments of its bishops are at such arm's length that it's very hard to claim that the government has much true influence over it. So uh, reject that for a start. But I think the, the, the collapse of Christianity, which I think took place really finally in the, in, in the European Christendom, during and after the First World War, has left an awful lot of people who find it impossible now to continue to believe in, in the Christian religion uh, in search of uh, a new 
set of ethics to replace it. I think uh, particularly the pursuit of human rights is part of that, to, to try and erect some sort of set of beliefs which replaces the Sermon on the Mount uh, is the struggle. To say it's atheist, I think, would be unfair to it because it's an attempt to replace the theist system with one without God, uh, whereas the atheist actually says the, the, the universe is a purposeless accident in which no action has any importance beyond its observable immediate effect. And I don't think the attempts by modern European governments to, to construct a new system of morals can be dismissed as anything as crude as that. It's, it's much more a matter of trying to cope with what they believe to be the absence of Christianity. Though many of them do actively reject Christianity. It's, uh, it, it's it, not many of them, I think, are the, are the sort of Somerset Maugham type atheists. I've always been fascinated by the character Philip Carey in Somerset Maugham's great novel, uh, of human bondage, who at one stage in the novel actually becomes an atheist and explains why, uh, precisely because it frees him for, for a life of, of total selfishness. I don't think that's the motivation. I mm. think there's a, there's, there's, a, there's a despair. I think the Christian religion did itself an enormous amount of damage by its widespread support for the war in 1914. And the, the, as, a, as a guiding force, it, 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 it struggles to recover from that. But I, I wouldn't want to characterize the efforts of Western governments to build some other moral system as, as actively atheist, secular for certain. Mm. Uh, but I think almost all attempts to build any kind of ethical system are uh, acknowledgments of the, of the fundamental goodness of a religious moral system, but lacking the, the central belief which makes it operate properly. And that's a really fascinating connection or indeed disconnection between the values that we tend to think we gather around in Western liberal democracies and the potential source of um, values. Do you think that as we, we stand today with a, I take your point, it's not a state church, but the established Church of England. Do you think that we have an established Church of England is simply a kind of bauble part of the furniture of the uh, of, of English and British tradition? Or do you think it has an impact upon the way in which we live our life as a country, the way in which we're governed? I think the people who say, let's get rid of it, let's disestablish the church, are like people who move into an old house. And they say, don't much like the look of that wall. It gets in the way of all kinds of things. Can't see what the point of it is. Knock it down. And then the house falls down. I think the established church plays more of a part in our national life than people realize. And to disestablish it would be to take away more than people would expect to go. Uh, I think, apart from anything else, the, the, the church's existence in England as a series of parishes in every square inch of the country does have an enormous impact that is in everywhere. Uh, and this, this includes many of the roughest and most unpleasant parts of our, of our poorest cities. There's everywhere a presence of the church. Mm -hmm. And it, an, an, an awful lot of quiet good is done by that. And if you got rid of that, because I think without an established church, that would disappear, you'd be losing something very important. You'd also be losing a declaration. And this is going to be very, uh, this will come up at the next coronation, which, of course, we have to accept is bound to happen. Mm. The last coronation was an extraordinarily clear declaration that this was, in fact, a Protestant Christian country of a certain character. I don't believe, and if you read or, or watch that service, I don't believe that anything of that kind could actually take place at the next coronation. So what will it be that we will believe? But we will at least believe something. And without a belief in something, I think society is just a howling wilderness. 
Well, let's just finish on something which I promise is not self-referential, uh, Peter. But obviously people who are in politics, who have a religious faith, sometimes find themselves treated with suspicion. The response we might get is, you know, you can believe what you like, but don't let it influence your decisions. I wonder if that is a, a feasible or desirable way to approach people in politics who do cleave to a, a religious faith. Well, I think I, we're warned in the Gospels that, that 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 standing up for faith among the among those who hate it, of whom there are many, uh, will lead to being reviled and despised and, uh, and and abused, and this will happen. And I think that we're also told in the Gospels that this is a great um, that this is a great uh, triumph when it happens. Something that you know, for which you know, there is you know, which. Let's let's express it in modern terms, uh, which is a demonstration of the fact that you're doing something good. So I think that there is uh, those who go into the arena of politics, which is increasingly secular and God-hating, and try to, in some way, assert the the, the principles of the faith, are going to be reviled. Uh, therefore, the, the questions have to arise when when you do that is with what issues you choose to do it on. And how you express them, and indeed whether you've got it right, and there are these are enormously complicated. But once you've done that and decided to speak, then then I think you have to take it as a compliment that that, that, the, that you're surrounded by howls of execration and being hosed down with slime. What a wonderful way to end, Peter! Uh, being hosed down with slime. Peter, it's been an absolute joy to talk to you. Loads more we could talk about. I hope we might be able to persuade you to come back and do another fifteen minutes at some point in the future. But for now. It's been a real joy. Peter Hitchens, thank you. Pleasure, thank you. Each week, we answer a question from you, the listener, about how Christianity and politics can work together. Maybe you're thinking through a particular issue, or you're not sure why people disagree on a certain policy. If you've got a question, I'd love it if you wrote it in, in an email to farron at premier.org.uk. Now this week, Sam in Newcastle has been in touch and he asks, do you agree that it is unjust that MPs can claim back energy costs through expenses when the rest of the country is hit by increases? That's a great question, Sam. I feel this week my job is to do an explainer rather than a kind of uh, a moral consideration or reflection. When MPs claim back energy costs, what we're talking about is this. So I am currently this week talking to you from my house up in Cumbria and um, everything to do with my home here I pay for myself uh, or my wife does we do between us there's no expenses claimed whatsoever over the home that we live in our family home because I live as far away from London as I do I'm allowed to have a flat that I stay in uh, in London for the purposes of doing my job if I was the MP for Watford or St Albans or somewhere like that I wouldn't have a flat in London because I wouldn't need one because I'd live close enough to Westminster to do the job in and out and commute each day. So MPs do get their living costs, their basic living costs, not their food, but their housing, heating, council tax in London paid for as part of the job. Now, I kind of think that is right. I would, wouldn't I? But bear in mind that if MPs had to pay, not just for their first home, but for the place they have to stay in order to do their job, you wouldn't get people like me in politics. You'd only have rich people doing it, uh, those who could afford to do it out of their own uh, pocket. So I take the view that when we talk about expenses, we probably ought to be talking about work costs. And um, we wouldn't expect you to buy your own desk for your job at work um, in any other job. So we wouldn't expect you to do the same in Parliament. 
But the point I think you have got, Sam, is that there are a lot of people in politics, and certainly any MP is on a reasonable salary, uh, who therefore lose touch with what it's like to struggle to pay the bills. And as a result, we often make poor decisions. And that's why we need to spend our time thinking ourselves into the shoes of others. So we make decisions for those who are at the sharpest end of poverty, not thinking from a comfortable middle-class position of security. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, as we come to the end of our time together this week, let's close in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we want to hold up to you the people of Ukraine. Uh, Lord, this war, this uh, invasion, this unjustified attack on Ukraine and its people has lasted for many weeks now. Uh, we thank you for the resilience of that country, for the bravery of the people there, for wisdom that we see amongst its leaders. We pray for your hand of justice to be upon those who commit crimes, um, that there would be no hiding place for those who do wrong, that you would lift up and protect those who are broken, that you would comfort the bereaved, that you would defend every woman and child and man in Ukraine, that you would protect every village and town and city in Ukraine, and that you would bring peace and justice to that country, and indeed to bring justice to those who are the perpetrators. Loving Heavenly Father, we pray for all of those people who are on the move, people who flee from desperate circumstances, whether that be poverty, war or persecution. It might be persecution because they are believers in your son, Jesus. We lift up everyone who we would count considered to be a refugee, every single one of those people, however they flee and whoever they to wherever, to wherever they flee to. We pray for those who might cross the channel in boats and we pray for your protection upon them. We pray for sanctuary for them and we pray for wisdom and generosity in the hearts of our leaders so that we might make wise and right decisions and that our debate might be seasoned with grace when we talk about these issues lord we pray all these things in the name of your precious son jesus amen thanks for listening don't forget that you can catch up on all the shows which have included interviews with party leaders former government ministers and mps from all the major parties just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premierchristianradio.com forward slash A Mucky Business. It's been great having you with us. See you soon.